Amen. I don't say this often, but this is one of the few Sundays I wish Andy was actually in here. Uh, what? He would consider that a compliment if I said that to him. Uh, because the three lessons that we're going to look at today, it's kind of fitting, actually, because I wasn't planning on doing these three today, but these three really do all flow together. And it really is, if you could summarize all of them in a simplistic fashion, it's the idea of approaching the Bible like a detective. I don't know if you guys have ever done that in your Bible reading. If you've ever opened up your Bible, you come to a difficult passage and you're like, you need to investigate, you need to discern things, you need to step back and just kind of observe, okay, what is it that I actually just read right now? What is this passage actually telling me? And then you start to kind of look at it from a different angle and you start to look at things that weren't there. You start to consider different angles that you previously didn't consider before. All things that a detective does. And again, if he was here, I'd have him come up and share, maybe I wouldn't, I would have him share what his life is like as it pertains to that. Because when, there, when it comes to the Bible, there are a lot of things that this is how you need to approach it. And this is kind of what you should have been doing already with how to study the Bible and the previous rules. But these three specifically, I don't know if you guys are like this at all whenever you're studying for a test, but how many of you... As you're studying and you just can't seem to grasp a concept down, you just can't seem to have your brain wrap around whatever it is you're studying, you can't remember it, and then all of a sudden you just take a step back, you take a breath, and you're like, look at it one last time, and then it just clicks for you. And you're like, why was I freaking out about something that was seemingly so complex when it's really, really very, very simple and easy. Has that ever happened to you guys when you're studying before or maybe when a problem on a test or a quiz? No? Yep. Okay. Thank you, Jamie. I actually studied in school. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's a nurse. Goals. Anyways. Uh, but the Bible's kind of like that. The thing to keep in mind with all three of these rules is that the Bible is always more simple than it is complex. Always keep in mind the fact that God wrote truth. God wrote the Bible to reveal truth, never to hide it. So if you come across a difficult passage or you're talking with a friend at school who maybe goes to a church and believes something different than what you do, and they might even show you a Bible verse and you look at it and you're like, I've never seen that verse in that light before. We might see some today that are like that. Always remember that the Bible is more simple than it is complex. God wrote the Bible to reveal truth. The greatest book in all the Bible that reveals who Jesus Christ actually is, is literally called Revelation. Revelation. Root word is reveal. That's how, anywho. And it's revealing the glory of Jesus Christ, who he is in all of his majesty. Revealing it. And that most people think that's one of the most complicated books to understand. It's really not. So lesson, or I guess rule number 12, the clarity factor, it states this. Never violate a clear passage when trying to understand an obscure passage. You know, we're going to see here in a little bit. Actually, well, no, we're not. One of the verses on here in the intro, uh, 2 Peter 3.16, I believe it's one of the verses above or below that where uh, Paul or Peter's actually writing. He's like, hey, you know what? Paul wrote some things that are hard to be understood. There are certain things that are like that, and you have to work for it. You have to be a detective. You have to investigate, dig a little deeper, but don't be too complex with it. Keep it simple. But look at the passages that we have here. Matthew 18, 16. This is a big one. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about church discipline when you have a problem between two Christians. And he says, if he, 
will not hear thee, the person you have a problem with, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every what? May be established. Now, this is again talking about if you have a conflict with somebody in the church, how you're supposed to resolve things. But you know what's kind of neat about that? When he says every word shall be established, what is one of the most important Bible rules that we've gone through in the past 15 or past 12 rules? I've only really mentioned three of them are like of the utmost supreme importance. Attitude factor was the one most recently did. But what about the other two? It's one of the first ones we did. Context is definitely one of them. What's the other one I'm looking for that kind of fits with this verse? Every word, every event, yeah, but even more specifically. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, actually it's right there on your study sheet, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We had talked about this principle when we covered that rule that whenever you want to come forward with what you believe doctrinally from the Bible, you better not just have one verse that you're banking on. You better make sure that you're able to go to one or two witnesses to back up what you believe because in the mouth of one or, or two or three, not one or two, two or three witnesses total, one or two more, in the mouth of two or three witnesses total shall every word be established. What this is telling us is that when it comes to the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines of the faith, what churches teach or should be teaching, there better be more than just one place in the Bible where it discusses that doctrine. If there is an obscure passage or a very complex passage that they're going to, to back up what they believe, and it contradicts a plethora of all of these simplistic passages, then you know something's different here. Because this obscure passage seems to convolute or make muddy the issue of this teaching, whereas all these passages over here are very, very simple and straightforward. You'll see how in just a couple examples in a little bit. Always make sure you have one or two more verses to back up what you believe. Don't just go to John 3.16. And that may be a good challenge for you guys. It wasn't in my notes, but can anybody think of other passages to go to other than John 3.16 to talk about what biblical salvation is? Hopefully, those of you not looking at me, it's because you're pondering what verses you could be saying. If I was somebody in the mall you ran into yesterday and you're wanting to know how to be saved, what verses would you go to? Hmm. Maybe something to think about for the rest of the day. So 2 Peter 3.16, again, Peter's saying, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. What's wrong with me? That was the verse I was thinking about earlier. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. They take things out of context because they're unlearned. They haven't applied the rules of Bible study. They don't have a right heart attitude when approaching the Bible. As they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You've got to watch for people who say they believe the same things as you. But as you start digging into what church they go to, and maybe you look up online their doctrinal statement, which I would challenge you guys to probably do that this week. Find out what church your friends at school go to and look up the doctrinal statement of the churches that they go to and see what they believe and see if it lines up with what you believe. 
you might find that you have a little less in common than you actually thought. That was eye-opening for me my junior year of high school. I started a Bible study at Perry thinking that, man, I finally found more people who are passionate about reaching their schools, so I thought. They're passionate about the Word of God, so I thought. And they believe the Bible just like me. And then when I opened up a Bible study at Perry for the first time, I had this Pentecostal over here. I had this hyper-dispensationalist over there. Look that one up. That's interesting. I had a Calvinist over here, two Calvinists actually. I had a Roman Catholic over here. I had a Methodist and a Presbyterian. And they were all arguing by week three over their different doctrinal differences. How would you respond if you were leading a Bible study like that? Argue back. How? I don't know. Figure it out. How would you figure it out? Call you. <laughs> I was going to say, are you just going to throw John 3.16 out? No. All right. So you better have two or three more witnesses. You got to watch. Verses are taken out of context. 2 Timothy 2.15, our headline verse, study to show yourself approved. All right, so important concepts about this. We already talked in Matthew 18.16, having two or three witnesses. God provides clarity to matters by giving two or three witnesses. If there is a doctrine that someone is teaching, there better be more than one spot where it's showing up in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 13.1 says that also, and that's a church epistle, very important, as does 1 Timothy 5.19. Second, to understand the Bible, we must become studious laborers. True maturity is the result of the faithful study and application of God's Word. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Hopefully a passage you guys are familiar with. Peter is telling these Christians that are scattered to add to their faith. And as it goes through the things that they are to add to their faith so that they're not blind, so that they anoint their eyes and they can see where God is leading them next. The following verse that he urges them, can I get a reader for verse 10? Here's the follow-up charge. Anyone? Anyone? James. But chiefly then the... Wait. Second Peter. Second Peter, one ten, right? Yep. Sorry, I was All right. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these, if you do these things, you shall never fall. You see that word election in the Bible. What should automatically pop into your mind? Election means. I heard someone whisper it. Someone in the middle row. Who said it? Say it out loud. Am I hearing things? Losing my hair and my hearing. <laughs> Service. Yeah. Blocking the ear. Service. What? <laughs> nope. I make sure that there's. They don't stay around long. If so, those of you who stay on the podcast, uh, hopefully that didn't pick up in the back. Anywho, you are elect to serve. Election is service. After you choose God by responding to the call of salvation, which is what it says there, make your calling and election sure. Calling precedes your election. When you respond to the gracious call of salvation, God chooses you to serve Him. But make diligence, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Because if you do these things, you'll never fall. You'll never fail. Look down to verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. 
There are going to be verses that we constantly hammer to you guys. There are going to be talking points that we as your leaders continue to talk with you about. There are going to be charges that we continue to give you guys year after year after year because after you graduate from here, we don't want you forgetting what we taught you and invested so much time, effort, and energy into so that you forget it as soon as you walk out the doors and as soon as you graduate and possibly go off to college. We don't want you guys forgetting these things. So you need to take diligence. You need to be diligent, hardworking, and making sure that you're not forgetting that. For example, you can take some of these important verses that we looked at in the introduction, and for those of you who have wide margin Bibles, put those verses in there with a little note that says, always keep things simple. The Bible is simple. Don't make an obscure, don't violate a clear passage by looking at an obscure one or by misunderstanding an obscure one. You can put these verses in there as a constant reminder to you. Hopefully you guys are putting your Romans notes in there because I'm telling you, Romans takes care of every other doctrinal issue you might find yourself running into along the way, down the road. If you do perchance go off to a college and if you do perchance find a church down there who it appears on the surface they believe the same thing you and I do. They might even use words like, for by grace are you saved through faith that is a gift of God. The only thing is, they might say that faith is the gift and not grace. Did you know that it matters which of the two things is important? Because if faith is the gift, that means you can't believe God unless He gives it to you. Which is a Calvinistic doctrine. Grace is the gift. God dying for you is the gift. You have to respond by faith. This is huge because Calvinism has overtaken so many Baptist churches all throughout America. There are a lot of popular preachers online who are constantly talking. They sound a lot like us, but you dig a little deeper, they are not of us. This is absolutely crucial. I'm telling you guys, it has sideswiped a lot of Christians. Point three. There are some passages in the Bible that are hard to be understood, as we just saw. Some passages in the Bible are blatantly closed. We don't have the time to look at it, but Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Daniel gets a revelation of truth from God. Literally. Present day application, you're reading your Bible. And you have no idea what on earth it's saying. And you go to God. We'll talk about this in three weeks' time from now is the final rule. You go to God and you're like, God, I don't understand this. Can you please help me out understand this? And you know what? God sometimes responds back to you. Now's not the time. Seal it up. Put it away. Move on. I've got more I want to show you. That's what he said to Daniel. The book of Daniel is the Old Testament equivalent of the book of Revelation. There were times where God specifically closed off truth to reveal it at a later time. That's the only exception. But we have a completed Bible here today, and Revelation, the book of Revelation, reveals the things that Daniel hid to everybody who read it in between those two time frames. We have a completed Bible. There's nothing hidden anymore. The personal, practical, devotional truths of what should I go, where should I go next, who should I be with, all those things, God might be answering you not now. And the same thing with when you're doing your devotions. You might not understand it. Give it time. Fourth or fifth bullet point. 
Remember to stay in the boundaries of the other factors and rules of Bible study. You can't violate the other rules we've already covered in order to make an obscure passage make sense to you. Again, we'll see some of these and some of these verses we've already seen before. That's why we're not going to spend much time on them. You can refer back to the other lessons. Remember, I already read that. So context factor, every word and event, dispensation, comparing scripture with scripture, apparent contradictions, consistency, literal, attitude, etc. And lastly, always remember that a passage's explanation is usually simple and not complex. God wrote his words to reveal truth to us, not to what? Louder. Hide it from us. So for example... For those of you who are struggling to find a John 3.16 cross-reference, oh, clarity factor in case you didn't know, that's what we're doing. Important concepts, which we already covered. Why didn't I delete these slides? This is stupid. Examples, that's what we're on right now. Again, just more time wasters. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's a good cross-reference for John 3, 16. Oh, I just quoted that too. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I can understand if you're looking at that verse alone. Is grace the gift or is faith the gift? But you know what you do? You just take your handy-dandy little online Bible concordance and you just search out gift, grace, gift and grace. And you know what you'll find? A plethora of other verses, two or three witnesses actually, that, say, that talk about grace being a gift coming from God. And then you go and you type in faith gift. And you know what you'll find? This is the only place where that shows up. So in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Do you know what you find how God is revealing truth to you? Grace is the gift as evident by the fact it shows up more than one time in the Bible. Don't be ripped off when someone starts talking to you about how faith is a gift and that God has to give you faith in order for you to be saved. It's not how it works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, most of you have this memorized from discipleship. At least you should. Very clear passage. There are passages like that all throughout the Bible. So, when you come up to a verse like this, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Is that verse hard to be understood? Just taking it at face value? Kind of is. If you're reading the book of Hebrews, you come across a verse like this, you're like, wait a second. So I'm the temple of the Holy Ghost. I know that. That's been beating my head all my life. Whose house I am, if I hold fast? Oh, man, how did I do this past week? Ugh. The rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Many people will look at an obscure verse like that and they just throw out all of the simple verses, all of the verses that God says over and over again of what salvation is. They just throw those simple verses out because they find one obscure passage that doesn't make sense to them right away. So they have to try to find a way to make it make sense and they violate all the other rules of Bible study. Again, who's this written to? People factor. It's right in the name. Hebrews, time factor. This is not a church age epistle. In fact, when the rapture happens and God goes back and takes the original branch and grafts it back in Romans 11.25, and he goes back to using Israel because he sets his temporary bill of divorcement aside, what book of the Bible do you think a Jew or a Hebrew might want to pick up and start reading? 
Hebrews, which will tell them everything they need to know about how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament laws and promises and practices. And this will help them because during that time period in the tribulation, time factor, dispensation factor, you will need to endure to the end. Which is why you want to get saved now and why you want your friends to get saved right now. Next one. There's another cross-reference for John 3.16 in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not of works. He had mercy on us. He sent His Son. And we, by faith, choose to receive Him and call upon Him. We are born again and we receive the Holy Ghost. You find that again and again and again all throughout Scripture. Then you've come across Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Yikes. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Okay, that kind of works. Of the doctrine of baptisms. Eek. And of laying on the hands. Eek. And of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we do if God permit. Oh boy, are we getting into some murky waters here. For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened, have you been enlightened by the heavenly gift of salvation? Okay, now he's saying there's something that's impossible to happen if that's the case. Uh, if they were tasted of the heavenly gift, we've tasted and seen the Lord is good, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away... He's saying it's impossible for them to renew them again unto repentance. So if you've tasted of God, you've been saved, and you fall away, it's impossible for you to taste of Him again. It's impossible for you to get saved again, is what this passage seems to be saying. They crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. We've talked about this before. We even just kind of used it in the last example. Who's it written to? What's the time factor? Salvation is going to be different in the tribulation period. You don't find passages like this in any of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles written to the church. We're in the church age right now. You will not find obscure passages like this. Don't violate the simple, clear passages in order to try to make sense of the obscure ones. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Man, aren't you glad for that? You have a defense attorney that when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, goes before God, like he did in the book of Job, and accuses God of what kind of son or daughter you are, the things that you did this week or thought or said this week, we have a defense attorney that says, Objection. My blood's covered him. Overruled. Actually, sustained. That's what the judge would say. But then you come across, huh, in the very same book. A very same book. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. <laughs> For his seed remaineth in him, God's seed, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Again, keep it simple. When does 1 John appear? Is it a church epistle? John wrote it during the church age, but he's writing it to Jewish Christians in the early first century, and it shows up in our Bible after the Pauline epistles written to a primarily Gentile church. 
That should give you a hint as to what time frame this is. Doctrinally speaking, three applications. There's a devotional truth to this. But think about your study in Romans. Romans chapter 6. If you've been baptized, you're in a certain position. What position is that? In Christ. You are in Christ. You've seen the example happening before from Pastor Tom. Maybe you haven't. This is you. This is Christ. Can you see you? No. When God the Father looks down, He sees the righteousness of His Son's bloodshed covering you. You're in Christ. Yeah. You will commit sin practically every single day. That's Romans chapter 7. But if you look at the context of 1 John chapter 3, what he's talking about here is the sin nature. Remember, we have been spiritually circumcised from our flesh. Christ is in us. Though we sin practically in chapter 7, we are dead to sin in Romans chapter 6. Applying to this church age we are in. From God's perspective... We do not commit sin anymore. Romans chapter 7. We do sin practically every single day. But from God's perspective, we're in Christ. We don't commit sin because His seed, the Holy Spirit, is in us. We're not going to get that sin nature back again. That's the application of that verse. But for someone in the tribulation period... You sure you want your friends and family going through the tribulation period? Those sins that you continue to struggle with, and when they supposedly get saved in the tribulation period and they start struggling with those sins, yeah, different ballgame now. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have the grace of God or the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, sealing you? Our friends and family who don't get saved before the rapture happens... That's what they're going to have to struggle with without the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Constantly battling in their mind and in their flesh every single day to not sin. All right. Uh, we don't have time for 1 John 5.16. You can check that out later. Again, 1 John, you just have to keep in mind, it's a tribulation letter. There are some devotional truths, but it's not written to us. It's for us. Next page. Two factors in one. Yes, it's possible. We can do it. The question factor and the confirmation factor. They state this very, very simply. Never base a doctrine on a question. Pay attention to punctuation. Punctuation matters. Is this a statement or a question? You don't base a doctrine on a question. And also, number two, the confirmation factor. Never base a doctrine on a single verse or passage. So you can see how what we just covered kind of already takes care of these things. That's why the verses that are in the introduction are the exact same as what we just covered. Two or three witnesses. Back up everything you believe with two or three verses. Keep it simple. Don't complicate things by basing a doctrine on a question or just one single verse. So jump down to the important concepts. We're going to cover the question factor first. First checkpoint. Question marks are designed to investigate. Remember, you're a detective. Questions in the Bible are important. They're often very, very stirring. 
And it causes you to think because the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote that question. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's asking you that question because he wants you to think about it, to investigate it, to interrogate and uncover an answer. Sometimes questions in the Bible can be rhetorical to support an answer. But remember that they are questions, not answers. You might want to underline that. Strange and unbiblical teachings that exist are often based on questions in Scripture, not clear teachings of God and the Bible. Be careful, next point, not to make one Scripture the basis of any unusual thought or teaching, especially if it goes contrary to other Scriptures. Okay, so this second bullet point here, this is talking about basing a doctrine on one single verse. We already covered the checkpoint for questions. We're moving on to single verse. Uh, if you cannot find it anywhere else in the Bible, leave it alone. If it is true, God will say it more than once. A great question to ask your friends if you're asking them about, hey, I saw this on your doctrinal statement of your church this week. Uh, do you know about this? If so, can you elaborate? Can you show me where else you get that in? This rule will protect you from bad teaching and unbiblical doctrine. Always remember, God's teachings are established by studying many places in Scripture. We don't have the time because we covered it a couple weeks back. You can Actually, about a month ago. You can look back at Romans chapter 9. This is examples of using questions to establish false doctrines. You guys remember in Romans chapter 9? We spent all that time looking at Israel and their past service to God, their past election to God, and how because of the hardness of their heart and their refusal to follow and respond to God's gracious call, their hearts got hardened. There's a lot of questions that show up in that passage, and if you remember, I told you this is a huge chapter that many Calvinists will take and will say that this supports their view of predestination. And it's a very extreme view that Pharaoh was created to have a hard heart and to have no grace and have no salvation whatsoever. Pharaoh's very existence was for that purpose. He was created to be an obstacle for the nation of Israel and he was always going to be damned to hell. Do you realize that they take that, that understanding of what they think God is talking about at Pharaoh there, and that they take it to apply the fact that God chose some people to be saved from before the foundation of the earth, and he chose some people to go to hell before the foundation of the earth. That that's what they take, and they, they preach that. Independent of whether or not you choose to receive him or not. I'm telling you, it may sound cultish, and it is, but... They have done such a masterful job of twisting the scriptures and violating the rules of Bible study that they have millions upon millions of followers in many Baptist churches. I've talked about this with some of you guys. You know, you're talking to maybe a Catholic friend. It's very easy for you to go through passages of the Bible and show them, hey, here's why we don't believe this. Some of you are even doing that in the last couple of weeks. And some of them, you might be surprised, they actually know their stuff. That's very, very few. Uh, Pentecostal, they're all experience and emotion-based, so it's a little bit, you know, easier again to negate them. They're just, they're probably not going to listen to you. They're saying, well, no, you don't understand. I experienced this. I spoke in tongues. I did all these things. I, it doesn't matter what you say. I know what I experienced. Yeah, but it's easy for you to refute it with the Bible, even though they won't hear you. A Calvinist, though, 
They know what they believe and they know why they believe it. And they will run circles around you and I in their Bibles if you don't know your stuff. You got to be very, very careful with a Calvinist. Remember Pastor Rory, because he dealt with this at his old church when they kicked him out. He used to say that they were Satan's special forces. They know their way around their Bible, and they know why they believe what they believe. And they're able to take those obscure passages you and I looked at, and they're able to make it make sense. They just violate all the rules of Bible study. But you got to be on guard. Extreme views of predestination are often based on a series of questions found in these verses. There's a reason why he's asking questions and not providing the answers. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, you guys are probably, uh, I don't know, maybe you will. You coming across this one is probably few and far between, but it's an important one we do have to cover, and I'll tell you why at the end of it. Somebody read verse 29. Jack. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? What does it appear to be saying? What does it appear to be saying? Just keep it simple. Baptism of the dead. Yeah. You know that in Catholicism, this started way back during the Dark Ages when when families were having their infant and newborn babies uh, die because of just how horrific things were back then, and the life expectancy was very, very short, things were dirtier, health practices, just atrocious, uh, the Catholic Church would come to those families and say, hey, you know, um, if you want to ensure that your baby is in heaven, you know, you can give indulgences, which is paying money to the church, and we'll pray on your behalf for that baby to get into heaven. What happens if I don't? <laughs> That's actually where that began. That's one of the reasons why they also started baptizing as infants in order to ensure that their babies get into heaven without even just going straight to the Bible and seeing that children are inheritance to the Lord. And seeing that even when David's infant son died, David said that I will go to him again. And he didn't mean hell. He meant heaven. Instead of going to the Bible, that's what they brought up. And so you see that there's a whole bunch of religious practices that are done in order to try to get your lost friend or your lost family member who just took their last breath there's a lot of religious practices that are done in order to try to get them into heaven. As though death wasn't the end. As though death wasn't... They still got one more chance even after death and it's up to you now to help them out. This is no new thing. But where it gets really weird is that in the 1800s when the Mormon cult started to come up. Anybody go to school with Mormons at all? So-so. Ask him about this or, or her about this if you run into them. The Mormon cult started bringing this up to the fact that they actually will commit baptisms on behalf of dead people in order to try to get them into heaven. The family themselves were baptized for their lost family member or friend that just died. But you know, it's funny, you look at that and you're like, well, it does seem like that's what they're talking about here. Well, first off, just to kind of hammer this, I mean, it's a question. And has anybody else ever seen this anywhere else in the Bible? No. This is the only place that anything like this shows up. 
Now here's the context of it. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what's going on here? First off, what's the context of the entire book of 1 Corinthians? Is it a good, cheerful book? No, it's a rebuke because the church was off. And he says that there's some among you that are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words, when you die, you're done. We're not going to live again. We're not going to see Christ. We're not going to rise again at the last day. There's no rapture. None of that. He goes, if there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain? What are we doing here, in other words? We might as well just go home. And your faith is also in vain. What do you believe in if there's no resurrection from the dead? If Christ didn't rise again from the dead. And if Christ be not raised, verse 17, then your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. And he talks, jump down to verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the, what? Just seeing if you guys are actually all following along. Verse 21, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all what? Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. He then goes on for the next couple verses to talk about how, I wish we had time to go into it, it's an awesome passage. He talks about how Christ, at the end of the millennium, Christ is going to come down off of his throne, and he is going to yield up the entire kingdom to God so that God can be all in all. It's a breathtaking picture and visual when you think about it. The idea that one day, it, it, it's not going to be, oh, hey, there's the Holy Spirit. Oh, hey, there's God the Son. Hey, there's God. The... No, it's going to be God all in all. God. Well, he's three, but he's one. It's going to be God. That's going to happen at the very end. But do you guys get the context of the immediate passage? He's talking about how there's some people who say there is no resurrection. There is no rising again from the grave. There's no new life. Do you have new life since you came to receive Christ? Well, hopefully... So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you're a new creature. You've been resurrected from your deadness of your trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And he says, talking about this, the context of this resurrection, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? In other words, if there is no resurrection, why are we baptizing people? Because what is baptism a picture of? According to Romans chapter 6, water baptism is a picture of our spiritual baptism when we were placed in Christ. Remember what we talk about, how we are, when we baptize people, that they were buried in the likeness of their sins, raised to walk in newness of life, just as Christ died and was buried, and He rose again from the grave? He's saying, okay, if you guys are all believing this lie, that there is no new life, why are we baptizing and raising people back up again? Here's what we should do, he's saying. Buried in the likeness of his death. Bloop, bloop. Can you imagine someone listening on the podcast and like not knowing what that was? If there is no newness of life, that's how we should be baptizing people. Because we're all dead anyways. If Christ didn't rise from the grave, 
That's how you baptize. Why are you guys dunking him and raising him back up again if he's not going to raise back up again? That's what he's talking about. You're baptizing for the dead. If the dead rise not at all, we're all dead. Why are they then baptized for the dead? Why are they then baptized and then raised back up if they're dead? That's what he's talking about. And then last on your study sheet there, James 2, 20. This is where he asks, you know, do you see now how faith without works is dead? That's the question he asks. We talked about that in another topic. Some people twist this question to say you must believe in Jesus Christ by faith and do something works to earn eternal salvation. Alex and I just talked to a kid yesterday, your buddy actually, talked to a kid yesterday who was clinging to his Catholic faith. And he was like, no, and you know, I, I do believe that he actually said the words, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I believe you go and you confess your sins. And I believe that you, you take, you know, you do baptism and that you take communion. And he's adding all of these works to the fact that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. He's adding something to his faith. And the Bible says that is another gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we had to work him through it. 1 Timothy 2.5 talks about how there's one God and one mediator, a go-between between God the Father and you, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the only one. You don't go to a priest to confess your sins and have him take it to God the Father. You don't have that priest be your go-between. There's one, and it's God. And it's funny, I've been challenged recently, like when we're going and doing these witnessing opportunities at the mall, and I hope you guys are too when you're talking to people, is that you're, you're not just saying the same rhetoric that you guys normally do. And I decided to do something a little different, and, I, and you were there, Alex, when you saw it. When he was talking about all these things, he kept wanting to cling to it. Even after I presented a clear gospel, he kept wanting to cling to this religion, his works. He, he had to do something. And I just finally stopped. I was like, you know, instead of trying to fight this, I'm like, you know what? With the exception of the priest thing and the First Timothy 2, 2, 5 thing, I said, you know what? I agree with everything you're saying. I said that to him. And he kind of stepped back a little bit. And I said, I just believe it comes after the point of decision. You're baptized after you make the choice to receive Christ. You do good works according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. After you receive the gift of grace by faith. All of those things. You confess your sins to God after you receive Christ as Savior. And it's funny because it finally God just got me out of my, my rhetoric and how I can be so just laser beamed on, okay, he's going to say this and then I'm going to come back with this. Then he's going to say that and I'm going to come back with this. And sometimes I think we forget when we're talking, especially when we're doing the mall ministry, that we need to just talk as a human to other humans and not be so robotic in our speech. And I hope he got that. We've got to be praying for him. You've got to follow up with him, man. All right. So that's the questions that a lot of people will base false doctrines on. This next section you guys see, again, as I mentioned earlier, there are some powerful questions in the Bible, but they're investigative. They're to get you to search your soul and to see, okay, this is God asking me these questions. When God said to Adam, where art thou? Maybe he's asking you, where have you been? Where have you been in your walk? How come you've not been meeting with me in the word of God this week? Will you meet with me now? Questions can be very, very powerful. Just don't base a church doctrine on it. Check out those passages later. And then we'll look at these uh, examples of using a single verse to establish false doctrines.
1 Corinthians 15, 29, we just looked at it. Not only is it, this is a verse for the question factor, it's also a verse for the single verse factor. This is the only place where this shows up, where Mormons will baptize for the dead. I almost forgot to mention, why do I spend so long talking about this when, man, you're probably not going to run into many Mormons in your entire life. You know how many Mormons there actually are on the planet? The entire state of Utah. <laughs> not where are they, how many? There's 17 million worldwide. I assure you, not all 17 million are in Utah. Close, though. 17 million. I get it. When you compare it to Catholicism or other things like that, it's not too much. That's one of the reasons why they're a cult, among other things. There's 17 million. I get it. That's not big in the big scope of things, but that's still 17 million souls that Jesus Christ bled and died for that are adhering to a false doctrine based upon and predicated upon one single verse that just so happened to be a question that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. 17 million souls that currently are on a path to hell because of that. Do you care? Even more so, the thing slowed down, I didn't think I'd ever say this, thankfully because of COVID, Things slowed down, but do you know that they grow about 1% annually every single year? That's 170,000 new souls converted to their cult and their religion every single year. 170,000. How many green towns is that? Don't let a Mormon outwitness you. Don't let Mormons be more committed to what they believe than you. Don't let a Mormon finish discipleship with a stronger commitment than you. 1 Corinthians 13.1, we talked about this before. It talks about the tongue of angels. Paul says, I speak with the tongue of angels. That's the only mention of it in the Scriptures. And i got news for you. Anytime an angel is speaking, he's speaking in Hebrew. That's the tongue of angels. That's the tongue you and I will be speaking one day. It's not some gibberish that people do in churches today. John 3, 5, we've covered before. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Taken alone, this passage indicates you are born again of the Spirit and baptism. Again, many churches will use that verse on its own. Not any other verse to back it up. They'll just take that verse out of context and they'll take it on its own and say, See, here it is in the Bible. You said, where do you find that in the Bible? Bible believer Baptist? Well, there it is. And last, Matthew 16, 18. I have this on the screen here. And I say also unto thee, Jesus speaking, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Anybody know what this verse appears to be saying? That churches have taken and misconstrued? Who's Jesus going to build his church on? What's it say? Who's Jesus going to build his church on? Or what, I should say? A rock. Which rock? That's what it seems to indicate. And Peter's name actually means stone. It seems to indicate that he's going to build his church upon Peter. And this verse, take it alone, because it's the only place it shows up. I haven't checked this out, but it might actually appear in some of the other uh, Gospels, but it's, it's this incident if it does. But it's no other place in the Bible. And there's a church 
the big one, the big kahuna, the Catholic Church, that says Peter was the first pope. Peter was the start in the formation of the church. The church started with Peter. Well, I guess if you take out Ephesians 2 verse... or uh, Hold on. I think it's 2.19. If you take out Ephesians 2.19, just read the whole chapter. You'll find the answer I'm looking for. If you take that verse out of context where it says that the church started with Christ and that he's the chief cornerstone, quoting, of course, from Isaiah chapter 26, that God is the chief cornerstone upon which the foundation of the prophets and the apostles built the church on. Take that out of context. Uh, take out of context the fact that in Paul's uh, final chapters of Romans, where it says that Peter was the first pope of the church in Rome, as in chapter 15, as Paul is doing his goodbyes and he lists all of these, I think it's like 36 Christians, 36 friends in the faith. Peter's name is not mentioned once. Aside from that, you take out of context the idea that Peter was so holy of a pope and of a priest that he had a mother-in-law. Taken further out of context, that if you just read four verses later, you know what Jesus said to the supposed first pope of the church of which he supposedly built his church on? He called Peter Satan. I'm sorry, but if you want to say that this is the verse that backs up that you believe the church started with Peter, <laughs> you're saying that that church, whatever church that is, is a satanic church, according to the words of Christ in verse 22 of that passage, when he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, talking to Peter. Now, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the rock is Jesus Christ himself. You can check that out in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, constantly, the capital R, Rock, is called, talking about Christ, foreshadowing Jesus. Yeah, Peter is called the stone. But you know how you really want to answer this? You guys might want to write down, I think it's John chapter 2. Stink, I didn't have this written down. One second. John chapter 2, and it's verse... 20 and 21. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, hey, tear down this temple and in three days I'm going to build it back up again. And they are all looking, oh, he's talking about our temple in Jerusalem. And he's like, no. He's like, the temple he's referring to is this body. Tear down this temple and in three days I'm going to raise it back up again. It's the same thing here. Thou art Peter and upon this rock me, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, as evidenced by the plethora of cross-references we just listed. Don't take a verse singly by itself. Important stuff. Simple. You're not going to use these rules that often. You're not going to come across these verses that often, but man, does it pack a punch and is it important? Let's pray.